Alive and Kicking on News Talk. You can email the show alive and kicking at newstalk.com or find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire McKenna Presents. Coming up this morning, I'll be joined by Spencer Matthews and John Belton to hear about the training they're undertaking to get themselves ready for the Jungle Ultra, 230 kilometres of self sufficient ultra marathon through the Amazon rainforest. Nutritionist Nivor Binsky on her new book, No Apologies, which urges people to ditch dieting for good and reconnect with their relationship with food. And Emer Daly on how dogs can provide therapy. So what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? Well, it was good. It was a busy week. I had a couple of events on for workplace well-being, and one of them was for Leia Healthcare at the Spectrum Life Studio. And They shared with me some recent research um, that I wanted to talk about here on the show. Um, Some of the top line figures are 36% of employees said their mental health was good, which is quite a low amount. 71% said they felt completely burnt out, hyper stressed and struggling to thrive. And more than 50% of referrals for occupational health are mental health related. So anxiety, stress, depression and relationship issues. Now, that can seem quite stark at first, but what I take from it is that if you're feeling this way, you are not alone. And employers are recognising this in their staff and there are many workplace supports being made available and people are also reaching out for help. I had three great panel discussions with experts, including psychologist Dr. Emelina Ellis, GP Dr. Sumi Dunn and Eric Donovan, who's a mental health advocate. And they all spoke of how often a professional, a GP, a therapist is needed to help people work through what's going on and to help build coping skills. And because 71% said financial worry was what stressed them the most, we also had a panel with Kel Gallivan and Paul Merriman, who spoke about controlling the controllables and they used the analogy, which I thought was a nice one, of turning the light on in the room, as it were, and really looking at our financial situations, often with a professional, looking at spending, looking at the future. And some people are even pleasantly surprised. We take all this bad news in from the media and start stressing, whereas Paul Merriman said there have been people in his boardroom who are surprised at how well set up they are for the future when they actually take a look rather than worrying about that boogeyman under the bed. Turn on that light and have a look. And one of my favourite take homes from the day was the incredible Jack Kavner, who's also a mental health advocate. And he was talking about controlling the controllables. And something he said, which is a really good place to start with minding our mental health, is on a Sunday evening, sitting down for 10 to 15 minutes And he makes a column for health, work, relationships and life admin. And he writes in underneath each one what he'd like to achieve in the week. Then the rest of the time he just writes down whatever comes to mind, what's bothering, what he'd like to do, just sees what comes out. And I loved that one. And I just thought I'd mention it because it is Sunday today that you might give that a go this evening. I'm going to do it. You can email the show if you do and let me know how you get on alive and kicking at newstalk.com. Now, Emer Daly of Daily Wellbeing joins me now to bring us some news from the world of health and wellness. Emer, you're very welcome. How is your health and wellness? My health and wellness is good. I'm always happy to be here in studio with you. Delighted to have you. You've picked a few stories from the world of health and wellness. And up first, we've got walking for three minutes every half an hour can help improve blood sugar levels. 
Absolutely. I love this story because we all have such busy lives and sometimes it's hard to get that work out in before work or make time for movement. But doing just as little as three minutes of movement every half hour can help us with lowering our blood sugar or our blood pressure and it can have really good benefits on our well-being and it's as little as three minutes. So let's start doing that. So this is good, I think, for people working from home or in an office environment where you're sitting in a chair. And I have heard for productivity to get up for a break every 30 minutes is really good when we tend to just keep going and keep going, but we're not at our best. So is it enough to kind of walk and stick on the kettle or walk and hang out or wash? Or do you literally need to be moving for the three minutes, taking steps for three minutes? Yeah, so there's lots of benefits. And I think that's a great example of working from home. Um any movement is good movement, whether you're popping on the kettle or I think a really good example is a day full of calls. You know you're going to be at your desk. Why not switch it up and take some of those calls while you're walking around the block or walking to the kitchen to make that cup of tea or your lunch or just even standing is really, really good to just kind of get that movement in the body so you're not static in that one position. And it has such good benefits for creativity. I sometimes have found myself sitting at my desk being like, why is it taking me 20 minutes to send this email? And the best thing to do is get up, walk around, have a new environment, change that perspective and you'll come back and you'll probably feel like you'll just send that email and say, that's all I needed to do. And then with our blood pressure and our blood glucose levels, we're kind of staving off any illness in the future, like a type 2 diabetes or any heart conditions, just with that little stroll around. You have a lovely story about a therapy dog. I do. I love this story so much as if dogs didn't bring us enough joy. But yes, Sippo is um, a 10 month old Labradoodle and he is helping young patients with eating disorder and helping them take that next step into their recovery. So he has been going to work with his owner every day um, in Brambles in North Hampshire. And he has found to really help the patients by just being there and being someone who they can you know, open up a little bit more and they're able to kind of just relax in the environment knowing that this dog is in the environment with them. Um, His owner has actually come out to say that Sippo, the dog, can tell when someone's feeling like quite anxious or vulnerable and he'll go over and rest his head on their knee or on their lap to let them know that he's there and make that little connection with them, which is so lovely to hear, especially when you're in a position like that, just to make that connection with an animal, I think is really, really special. Dogs are incredible, aren't they? And I know they're used in therapeutic practice quite a lot, everything from a guide dog to even being brought into schools or to neurodiversity. They just kind of help everything. They have so many benefits. And for me, I'm someone who minds dogs. I am currently minding a five-month-old cockapoodle. And although he is going to the toilet absolutely everywhere and biting everything, it's hard to be in a bad mood when they're there. And they really do just provide company at the end of the day. And that can help us with like lessening depression or feeling loneliness or just giving you that bit of a better outlook on life, whether you're taking them to the park or the beach, you're noticing the more simple things that are around you. You're opening your eyes up to a lot more. And, you know, they really just do have a lot of benefits. And if you feel like you're somebody who could be in a position to benefit from dog therapy or having a dog in your life, I think it's definitely something worth looking into. Yeah. And adopt, don't shop where you can. Um, and finally, a lovely story that's also easy to do. World Laughter Day is coming up. World Laughter Day is coming up on the 7th of May. And I absolutely love this. Who doesn't love a good belly laugh? It's one of my 
when I'm feeling like I just need, you know, a a new headspace, I just go meet up with one of my friends and I say, I know that I'm going to get a good laugh here. But World Laughter Day is really raising awareness um, about how much joy laughter can bring into our lives. And it actually has a lot of health benefits as well, which is even leaving physical, when you have that physical pain in your body, having a good belly laugh can just kind of relieve some stress from our body um, and just give us some endorphins up to our brain, which make us feel good and in a good mood. Um, And it's just a really lovely day to stop stressing and have a laugh. Yeah, stick on a funny movie, stick on a funny sitcom, ring a friend, meet a friend, as you said. I don't think I can do forced laughing. You know, there's like laughter yoga or this kind of thing. I mean, I think it has to be genuine, heartfelt, you found something funny laughter. Yeah, well, we all have different things that make us laugh. I mean, even watching a funny video that you know is going to make you laugh and it never gets old. That's always a good one to go to. Or bringing a terrible joke to the table is can sometimes also make everyone laugh as well. Yeah, so embrace it, not just on World Laughter Day, but every day. Emer, tell people where you're, they can find you on Instagram. Yeah, so you can find me on Daily Wellbeing on Instagram and I pop up Daily Wellbeing tips all the time and some of these stories you can follow with me throughout that journey. And you've just launched a podcast called Figuring It All Out. Figuring It All Out, yes, my new podcast where I'm chatting to individuals about their own figuring it out journey because at the end of the day I think lots of us are just doing that every single day whether it's our well-being or our career or things about ourselves so it's a space for people to share that journey as well. Emer Daly from Daily Wellbeing thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Alive and kicking on News Talk. Now, friend of the show, nutritionist, intuitive eating counsellor and yoga teacher, Neve Orbinski has written her first book, No Apologies, Ditch Diet Culture and Rebuild Your Relationship with Food. She joins me in studio now. Congratulations. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled with it. How does it feel to have it in your hands? It is, it feels like it's a long time coming. <laughs> so it's great to finally have the physical copy. Yeah, because it's a lot of blood, sweat and tears, isn't it? A lot of blood, sweat and tears, a lot of coffee. Fueled by coffee. But um, it was a great experience to write it. And um, I'm just so thrilled to finally have it out there in the wild. And this was a message that you have cultivated through your training, through your clients. So you really wanted to put it out there. Yeah, I think that this message is very important. And No Apologies is the first book written by an Irish author on the Irish market that covers this topic, which is really exciting. But it just shows how needed it is that, I guess, in order to be healthy, it it doesn't automatically mean that we need to focus on losing weight. And there are so many other ways that we can focus on our health than trying to drop the number on the scales. And um, a lot of people have an unhealthy relationship with food or a fractured relationship with food, but don't even realise it because it's so normalised in our culture. So I wanted to put out there um, a book that helped people to understand that and acknowledge that maybe about their own relationship with food, but in a very positive way, right? So that it doesn't mean that there's something really inherently wrong with us, but just that we need to work on improving our relationship with food so that we can approach our health in a much more, I guess, sustainable way. So can we touch on some of the topics in the book? Can you tell people why diets don't work? Yes. So when we go on a diet, i.e. we restrict, we have to engage in lots of different behaviours that ultimately are quite unhealthy behaviours. And we have to... Um, 
pull our basically to lose weight you need to reduce your calorie intake and when we do that our body reacts in a way that um, it basically takes it like we're in a starvation response right so it doesn't know the difference between whether we are actually in a famine or we are doing this to lose a few pounds to fit into a dress for a certain event right so the body compensates and it starts to reduce the amount of energy that it is using. And over time, our metabolism reduces with every single diet. And this is why people can lose weight on a diet, but then increase that weight eventually over a period of about five years from the initial diet. And people end up higher, a higher weight than they ever were than when they started because of this response. And what is the stat? Do you have it on the book somewhere? Is it 95% of people on diets will gain back the weight and more. Yeah, so the the stats that we have are anywhere from 95 to 98% of people who go on a diet will regain that weight within a period of about five years. So when we regain weight after a diet, we don't think about the diet that we did five years ago, right? We might blame ourselves or look at our um, behaviours in the last six months, let's say. But I've had clients sitting in my practice who are maybe on minimum two diets a year. So with every diet, they're gaining a little bit more weight and a little bit more weight. And um, we can even look at our, you know, our environment and the people around us. And I always ask people, is there anyone in your life that you know that has lost a lot of weight and maintained that weight loss over a period of five years? Most people say no. Or if they say yes, I will then ask if they know anything about that person's life or what it's like for them to try and maintain that weight loss. And for a lot of people, it has to, um, they have to engage in really unhealthy behaviours to maintain that weight loss over um, a period of five years. Some people will maintain that weight loss, but they are in the minority and not the majority. Yeah. And, you know, it's not about the weight, as you've already said. It's about what that does not only on a physical level, but to your relationship with yourself and with food. Yeah, yeah. It really impacts your relationship with food, body and self because we are being taught that our body is not good enough as it is and we constantly need to fix and change it. And for a lot of people, their self-worth can be attached to the number that they are on a scale. Um, But ultimately, you are so much more than your body. Your body is your container that carries you through life. And that allows you to experience the really big moments, but also the really small moments. And none of that would be possible without the body. But diet culture really encourages us to abandon our bodies, right? And to always feel like they're not good enough as they are. Can you explain to people, it's been discussed on the show before, but I think it's always a drum worth banging as loud Mm. as possible, what diet culture is? Yeah, so diet culture is a system of beliefs that attach thinness to health, happiness, desirability, success, etc. So diet culture is not just a, um, a diet or being told what to eat and when to eat. It's also the idea that thinness is one of the most important things that we should have or that we should be striving towards. And if we are not thin, we are um, locked out of accessing some things in life like I mentioned, health, happiness, desirability, success. And I can see this through the experiences, the lived experiences that people share with me in clinic. 
um, where they feel like maybe they've been passed over for job promotions because of their size or maybe when they go out into the dating world, they feel like they feel very vulnerable and maybe it's been commented, their weight has been commented on. Um, so there's a lot of stigma out there um, around fatness. And when I say fatness, I say this very neutrally as well. I think it's important to mention that. Um, so diet culture is toxic, right? It really, as as women especially, but men too, but definitely as women, it it makes us feel like we have to retreat and retract and make ourselves smaller if we do not fit into this box that diet culture has created for us. And you really delve into it in the book and historically, you know, what was in fashion, which will just show you further that we can never keep up. Mm. Um, And not only can we not keep up with the trends, but physically so much of our body weight is determined by our genetics, this isn't something we can necessarily control the way we're told. Absolutely not. I mean, there's a a really great twin study and um, we can see from this study that 80% of our height is genetically determined and 70% of our weight is genetically determined. I mean, I'm 5'3", I would love to be 5'7", but it's just not something that I can say out loud, right? That I'm going to really try and and be 5'7", it's just not possible. But yet we're sold this story that we can completely control our weight. Now, I know this, for some people listening to this, this might be, they might be questioning what I'm saying right now. And I'm not saying that we can't influence our weight. We can, of course, influence our weight through our diet and lifestyle. But this idea that we can wholly control our body size is just really outdated and not reflected in the research. Yeah, you're just fighting a losing battle and along the way losing what can be a healthy relationship with food and your body. And I was constantly highlighting through the book ahead of our chat. Mm -hmm. um, My poor highlighter (laughs) was work to the bone. Mm -hmm. But there was one thing that really stayed with me and it was the analogy, and I know you borrowed it from somebody else, of our bodies as our house. Mm -hmm. Can you describe that to people? Because I think that will really hit home. Yeah, yeah. So um, this um, analogy is taken from Hilary McBride. She is um, an amazing psychologist. And in her book, she talks about how our body is our home, right? And if we imagine, you know, if you're lucky enough to own a house or to have a roof over your head, your house has everything that you need on the inside. So it will have, you know, food in the fridge or maybe like a cosy bed to go to sleep in or a couch to relax in. And this is your safe place your home. Um, And then over time, you start looking out the windows and realising that everyone on the street is outside of their house, on the lawn, looking at other people's houses and the front of their houses and deciding that they're going to um, maybe make the outside of their houses look better. So then you might join them outside because everyone else is doing this, right? Trying to make the outside of their houses look better. But the more time we spend outside on the front lawn, the less time we spend on the inside. So we lose connection to what's actually going on inside the house. Maybe we forget to stock the fridge or forget to clean the bathroom or, you know, we're not looking after it in the same way because we only have a limited amount of time. So this process of rebuilding our relationship with food is and body image is akin to coming back inside your house and looking after the inside of your house. And maybe sometimes going out onto the lawn and chatting to other people on the road, but not spending the majority 
of your time out on the road because then we can't enjoy the um, the great experience of living inside our house, right? I know, it's such a waste of time to spend your whole time when you've got this lovely house out in the lawn looking at what other people are doing. Just go in, stick the fire on and sit down and and that's what you're talking about. Mm. Before we get into that reconnecting, which is a whole section of the book, what are you hearing in clinic from from clients? When people get to you, where are they with themselves and food? Yeah, so most of the time when people reach out to me, they've hit what we call diet bottom. So they've maybe been on diets their entire lives, anywhere from 10 to 40 years. And they've maybe lost weight. So they will say that diets have worked for them, but only in the short term. And they've come to a place where they don't know what to do anymore. So they could be heavier than they've ever been. Um, They could feel like they're constantly yo-yoing, either in weight or in their behaviours around food. So, you know, I only got a a message there um, a few days ago from someone who said, I'm either all in or all out. So I'm either eating everything that's healthy or I'm at McDonald's. And there is no in-between, right? Um, They feel totally lost. They feel quite hopeless as well because they've maybe tried everything. Um, And that's unfortunately where people are when they come to me, right? I'm I'm usually like the last resort for a lot of people. Um, But it's amazing to receive someone in clinic that's at that place and be able to tell them that this can get better. And it's not your fault. And that can be amazing for people to hear that all of this, you know, yo-yoing, the continually increasing weight is actually a physiological reaction to dieting and not something that they've done wrong or that is inherently wrong about them as an individual. Um, So when we work through this whole process of rebuilding their relationship with food, they transform their life in so many other ways. Their life expands. They expand it's so much more than just about the food because our relationship with food impacts every single area of our life. If we don't feel embodied or we don't feel safe in our own body or we don't feel at home in our own body or we don't trust our own body, it really affects how we show up in our relationships, how we show up in our career. Um, This is not, uh, we can't look at this in an isolated way. Um, So I have seen clients after they come through the whole process maybe, um, you know, start dating when they haven't dated forever and, uh, you know, meet someone um, that they'd like to spend their life with. Or I've seen people start businesses that they've wanted to start forever. Or I've just seen people show up for themselves in their own life and in their relationships and everything improves. So it's really amazing to watch someone go from this place of helplessness and feeling really small to really um, trusting themselves and coming to this place of actually, you know what, I'm worthy of living and being here and I'm going to show off myself unapologetically. And that's really the process. And you gave an example there of what a client would say, that I'm eating healthy or I'm, I'm in McDonald's, because that's not your view of food, this binary good and bad food. Yeah. I mean, you're a nutritionist, so obviously, you know, you think food is important, mm. but you don't see food as good and bad. There's a place for all foods. Um, and I think people think when they have food freedom or they they don't diet, that they're going to constantly have like ice cream for breakfast, lunch and dinner. And that's not the case. Can you talk to us a bit about the honeymoon period? Yeah, Yeah, so um, there's three phases in the book. Remove, reconnect and reestablish. 
And the first phase is all about removing restrictions, removing diet culture from our internal and external world. And part of that process is um, allowing all foods in. Now, when I say this to people in clinic, they kind of retreat and go, oh, I don't know, that doesn't feel very safe to me. Um, But when we allow all foods in after a period of restriction, that could be decades, by the way, um, there is what we call the honeymoon effect. Like a kid let loose in a candy shop because now we can have pizza for dinner, I can have ice cream for breakfast if I want. Uh, It's a normal reaction to deprivation, okay? But this is short-term. It doesn't go on forever. And it's a really important process to go through. I would say to people, the more they resist, the longer the process will go on for. So we need to really give ourselves unconditional permission to eat all foods. Now, in clinic, I do this in a very structured way because people can have a lot of fear around it and we need to do it slowly and we need to build up some kind of connection to the body first. Um, But eventually, and my clients have told me this, these are my clients' words, they will say things like, I left chocolate in the fridge and I forgot about it. When for 30 years, they could constantly hear the siren call of the chocolate in the fridge or just not have it in the house because, you know, if they have it in the house, they'll eat it. Or people who say that they, you know, the minute they opened a bag of crisps, they couldn't stop. Now it's just not a big deal to them anymore. They can have them. They might not have them, but they can make a choice in the moment. And that's what we want to get to. We want to check in with our body moment to moment and ask ourselves, do I really want this food? Would I like how this food makes my body feel right now in this moment? If there are any restrictions present, we cannot ask ourselves that question because there's this constant little voice saying, don't have it don't have it, don't have it. And then eventually we just give in. And you talk about rebuilding all different areas of your life. So you have different coping strategies, even though you don't demonise emotional eating because Mm. even celebrating your birthday with cake and your friends, that's emotional eating and Mm. that's fine. Um, Again, there's no demonising of food, but it's about that tuning in, as you say. And there's one more concept I want to speak about because I I, I didn't know it until I read it in the book that we have different types of hunger. Mm. Yeah. So um, we have four different types of hunger. First is physical. Um, This is the physical, you know, hunger cues, hunger pangs, etc. So we need food. Then we have um, taste hunger. And this always surprises people. So taste hunger is not having physical hunger cues, but just really wanting, I don't know, a bar of chocolate watching Netflix or buying a box of popcorn when you go to the cinema or, you know, grabbing an ice cream on a sunny day. It's okay to eat when we're not hungry. It's okay to derive pleasure from food. But these uh, foods have been demonised, right? Chocolate, sweets, ice cream, etc. It's perfectly okay to eat out of taste hunger. Um, Unless it's, you know, we're eating a lot out of taste hunger and it's making our bodies feel unwell. Then you've got practical hunger. This is eating in the absence of physical hunger cues, but to look after your future self. So let's say you have a day of meetings, maybe four hours back to back, your last chance to eat lunch is at 11am. So you decide, even though you're not hungry, you're going to eat now to kind of push your energy out a little bit longer. And then finally, we've got emotional hunger. So eating in response to any emotion. Again, emotional eating is perfectly healthy, but it only becomes a problem when we become dependent on food as a coping skill or it is um, our only coping skill Um, our primary coping skill. I like to say that we need a Mary Poppins bag of coping skills so that we can choose the best one that serves us at any any one moment. 
Well, look, it's written beautifully. It's not finger wagging. It's not. It's just a beautiful, warm place for people to have a look at their relationship with food. You're not saying what anybody should or shouldn't do. And it's full of beautiful supports. You've even got meditations that people can follow on your website, which I'm going to give out now. It's nutritionwithneve.com and you'll also find Neve on Instagram at nutritionwithneve. The book is called No Apologies, Ditch Diet Culture and Rebuild Your Relationship with Food. Neve Urbinski, thank you so, so much. Thank you. Alive and kicking on News Talk. Now, do you believe the human body is capable of anything its owner puts their mind to? John Belton and Spencer Matthews certainly seem to, and they join me on the line now. You're very welcome, gentlemen. How are you? Delighted to be joining you, darling. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you very much. Before we get into this upcoming jungle challenge, John, can you first remind people of what you did in the Ice Ultra? Oh, I love the way you say what what I did and not what myself and Spencer did. Sorry, but, I forgot uh, you were there, Spencer, but I'm getting to the Marathon de Sable in a moment. <laughs> um, so last year, myself and Spencer embarked on a trip um, in the Arctic Circle, 255 kilometre stage race, um, self-sufficient stage race, I should say, through the Arctic Circle, minus 42 degrees, sleeping out in a tent, that type of thing. Uh, yeah, it, was, it, was pre- it was pretty full on. Um, and then Spencer unfortunately got sick on that one um, and he was pretty bad with, with COVID so I had to stop. Um, so I think there's a new challenge now that he's presented, um, which we are about to talk about now, I guess. And in the desert, you did get to complete that, Spencer. What was that challenge? Yes, yeah, so the Marathon de Sable is, is considered by some to be the world's toughest foot race. Uh, not sure whether or not that's... Uh, True, obviously, as I, I haven't done uh, all of the toughest foot races in the world, but it was certainly challenging enough. Very similar uh, to um, the distance of the Arctic. I believe we clocked in at about 240 kilometers that, that time. It changes um, slightly each year because it's a new course. Um, it was the only marathon to ever be in October, which meant that it was the hottest one on record. Uh, 59 degrees C was the, was the, the hottest day. Again, five stages um, and uh, self-sufficient. So you're carrying all of your food and kit for the week, um, topping up at checkpoints for water only. And uh, yeah, I mean that was um, pretty cathartic. Actually, it was almost uh, for for somebody that's not religious. It was uh, pretty eye-opening, kind of where the mind can take you on some of the longer stages. And that's the part I'm really fascinated by. And even when you came on, John, and spoke about the Ice Ultra. It was the way you spoke about it and it wasn't just the physical. Um, yeah, there was something really, really incredible about it. So you're back for more. What does the Jungle Ultra entail? Oh, everything everything that is going to challenge everything. So you're, you're looking at 230 kilometres, daytime temperatures of upwards of 30 degrees with 100% humidity. You're starting at very high altitude and then getting down into kind of the um, Amazon basin, I suppose it's called. You're dealing with sleep deprivation. You're dealing with spiders, snakes, all sorts of different bits and bobs like that. Um, and then you're also trying to, you know, put in a good time and uh, and compete. And it's the self-sufficient part that kills me that you did in the desert, in the ice, and now you'll be doing in the jungle because you would think after a long day's running a marathon, you would want a hot shower, a cold drink, a decent kip and that's not something you can get on these ultras 
No, so on this on this particular one, apparently sleep is a real issue because it can be wet the entire time. Um, it can rain for the full five days, obviously being in the Amazon, and with the humidity, it's going to be uh, very difficult to sleep properly. There's no real cover, um, so you sleep in tents. So if it is just lashing rain, uh, you will be wet. And uh, you know, from speaking to a couple of previous contestants, they just said that it was wet the whole time. They didn't sleep at all for five days. Um, so that's going to be a kind of difficult uh, thing to juggle, at least in the desert. You know, it's nice and it's nice and warm. It does get cold at night, but you get into your sleeping bag and, you know, you're exhausted from the day's activity and you can conk out. Um, but if somebody was pouring water all over you, that might be a different story. If yeah, I have a big day... They're rushing hammocks. Hammocks. Yeah. <laughs> well, if I have a big day, you know, at work, I'm stressing that I won't get enough sleep. I just don't really understand how you're going to get up and run through the jungle and through rivers. But look, I've, I've no doubt you're going to do it. What sort of training are you undertaking in preparation? Obviously, I'm in a warmer climate, so I'm just getting out in the heat, getting time on my feet, getting time with a, with a rucksack on and get, you know, getting used to that. The training really has to work around life, so it means early, early morning starts or late night starts. Um, you used to kind of go in when you don't want to go is half the challenge. Um, really, it's, it's about... The longer the race, the more important the, the mindset, in my opinion. Uh, but myself and Spence have a decent aerobic and strength base as it is, so I don't think that will be our limiting factor to completing this. I think it will be the the, the unknown and unknowable at the moment for us. That that's going to be the real challenge. So you know, training is about building up time on your feet, getting strong, getting used to your your kit and your nutrition, um, and then trying to get mentally ready for it. How do you try and get mentally ready? I think I think you're you're either disposed to this kind of thing or or, or you're not really. Um, you know, I, I personally um, I don't mind the pain of it because you know it's you know short. It's, it's, it's five days, and I think the pleasure that you get from completing these things, uh, in my case, is uh, is pretty palpable. Like you know, finishing the marathon sub. Um, it doesn't settle in straight away, but, you know, on the flight home, as an example, you, you kind of feel like you can conquer most things. And it's just, it's a, it's a wonderful feeling to be able to put yourself through something that is perceived to be uh, incredibly difficult or is difficult and, and coming out on top, you know, it's your, you're fighting yourself and it's, uh, just, it'll be an incredibly interesting life experience as well, you know, so we I suspect you will always remember it. And you're doing this not only for, for that endeavour, but also to raise funds for the Michael Matthews Foundation set up in your brother's name. People will know now that he, he lost his life on the descent from the summit of Everest, the youngest Briton ever to do so. And you documented his journey in finding Michael. And I'd have to say I was so moved by the documentary. I watched it with my husband and kids. We were all glued to it and it stayed with me long after. And one of the the questions that really stayed with me was why somebody does something like that. The people that climb, the the bodies left behind, what people have to go through. It was obviously very personal for you to do that. Were you happy with how it's been received? Yeah, to be honest, I couldn't be more delighted with the way it was made. Um, you know, we, we chose an incredible team and Tom Beard did a fantastic job of directing and, uh, you know, the search and recovery team were, were just phenomenal. And as an experience, it'll it'll... Uh, stay with me forever. I think that 
um, people have never been kinder about the film. And I think it, it's kind of, to me, it feels like more than a film. I think anybody who, you know, has experienced loss, um, which is, of course, most people will find something in that film that they can relate to. Um, so, you know, it was, uh, I've, I've been told, of course, it's not for me to say, but I've been told that it's uh, moved, you know, a lot of people and has been, um, has had quite a powerful impact on people, which is, of course, um, what I was hoping for to, to give Michael uh, a legacy and for him to be uh, remembered for his brave efforts as a 22-year-old. And can you tell us a little bit about the work the Foundation does? Sure. So we've looked after uh, just over 7,000 children uh, and, and helped uh, young girls in rural parts of, of Tanzania. These areas are not easily accessible, um, so they're, they're very remote. And so the girls um, have historically had to walk very long distances uh, to go to school, sometimes up to 10 miles uh, to get to school, which is just an alarming uh, distance to, to get to school on foot. And that would open you up to, well, open them up, sorry, I should say, to, to all kinds of, um, just just all kinds of issues, both as animals um, and, and humans. Um, so it's, uh, in order to try and help them, we have done three things. We have built um, dormitories um, for these girls so that they can essentially board and, and, and stay uh, in school, we educate them uh, as well. We've digitalized their learning, so we are, are the first in that area uh, to be using tablets to educate the kids, so kind of revolutionizing the way in which they were learning before. Uh, and we have an entrepreneurship program that teaches the girls kind of how to start a business, and then we will fund those businesses uh, if the ideas uh, kind of work and are credible, but they're guided through that process. So another incredible legacy in your brother's name. Um, and can I ask you both the question I asked in the introduction? Do you believe the human body is capable of anything you put your mind to? Your mind to is a bit of a strong statement mm-hmm. because, of course, the human body simply can't do certain things. But anything that... Uh, but yeah, within, within reason, yes. I think, you know, my buddy Nims says in his film 14 Peaks, you know, when you... When you well, I won't repeat it because it's because it's rude. But he says, you know, when you think you're done, um, you know, you're only actually about forty percent done. Um, and you know, I, I certainly believe that to be true. Like in in both of our cases, you know, both with John and the ice, well, with me and the ice until the third day as well, and the and the marathon de Sable, the desire to give up is very real. You know, these things aren't particularly enjoyable at the time. Um, and when you believe you simply can't go on you can go on. So as long as you're physically able to put one foot in front of the other, you need to continue to do so. And I think that's a good kind of metaphor for life really as well. So sorry for my long-winded answer, but yes, you know, in general, I believe that people can do and achieve far more than, um, than they think they can. And John? Uh, yeah, I think discomfort, you know, unfortunately we became very sheltered in how we expose ourselves to kind of discomfort and I suppose that's progression but once you get out there and you start to feel discomfort you you know it kind of never changes on day one of the ice ultra I cramped up pretty bad and thought I was going to have to finish I kind of had this aha moment where I realised that you know what when you're doing an ultra something's going to go wrong every day and something's going to come up you just have to deal with it and move on 
and once you do that, you start realizing that your potential is so much greater than it than you anticipated it to be. And um, you know, the, the common kind of saying of adversity is where is where we grow. It, it's definitely exposed in an event like this, where you've got such a kind of concentrated period of exposure to things like this. You just grow at such a rate that it's like five years of regular life. So I find that to be quite exhilarating. And, um, you know, there's a line about finding your edge and, um, you know, finding the edge of the human potential, finding the edge of your, your mental capacity is something that I, I definitely am interested in. Yeah. Yeah. I find it fascinating. Um, I, I really do. What is it in somebody that makes them just go that that little bit further? And can I put something to you, um, Spencer, and I hope you'll take it in the way it's intended because I personally think it's unfair, but there will be people that will say, oh, it's okay for you. You can make time for training. You have money. You have a nanny for your children. And I know you have lots of supporters, but I saw the post you put up the other day about the 10 years you've spent working consistently on yourself, working consistently building your family, building up your business, that this has taken hard work. Um, And what do you say to the naysayers? I don't don't know. I, I work about as hard as I can, you know. Um, so that's fine. Like I think, um, as you say, there'll always be people on either side of the fence. And to be honest, I, I never think about it and it doesn't bother me. Good. I like that. And John, while we're on the subject, I'd like to call out some more naysayers if I can, because mm-hmm. every time you do a question and answers on Instagram, you get asked why you're punching above your weight. And I just think I want to take <laughs> this opportunity on national radio to say, let's stop saying that to any people anywhere. It's just not cool. Yeah. Well, listen, if, if some of the comments and questions I got were a guy asking a girl, there'd be uproar about it, being very honest. But listen, I'm I'm thicker skinned than that, so it certainly doesn't bother me. And actually, Spencer gave me a great line. He said, of course you should be hearing that. Of course you should be punching above your weight. You want to strive to, you know, achieve more and do all that sort of stuff. So... Uh, I'm I'm pretty okay with that. But thank you for acknowledging that on public radio. Yes, it's yeah, offensive yeah. and there's absolutely no need. Uh, but, but speaking yeah. of your beautiful but, wife, but, go on, Spencer. But, well, no, I was just going to say from a fellow from a fellow bloke who is also punching above his weight, um, it's actually the the aim for us men is exactly. to have, you know, a, a, a better wife than yourself. You know, given that the alternative would be that you have an average wife. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think the fact that they are more beautiful and better than us surely is the dream. Well, I might allow it for you seeing as your wife is from Hoth and so am I, Spencer, but I still think there's absolutely no need. We should be viewing people as equals. Um, you know, I don't think we need to put one down to big up the other. But John, speaking of your, your beautiful wife, you announced this week online, which is funny because you knew it anyway, of course, that you have another challenge on the way. Uh, a baby will arrive in 20 weeks time. Yeah, perhaps I'm going to find out the ultimate ultimate endurance <laughs> event is not something that I'm able for. But yeah, yeah, we're we're extremely excited. Uh, Twenty weeks, and my whole world is going to get rocked and turn upside down in 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 all of, a whole lot of great ways. But that's a journey I'm definitely excited for. So to get all these events out of the way before that, of course. Yeah, well, I think you can do it, Spencer. You've done it three times. Have you any tips for our new dad? Just, uh, just take it in your stride. Honestly, everybody's parenting style is different, and and you know I think uh, John will be a fabulous father. He needn't worry. So you two now heading out at the start of June to the Jungle Ultra. Is this something you can do together, or do you just say see you at the finish? Good luck. I think I think it's it's more it's more the latter, and it's not because you're. 
I mean, obviously, at times, if you want to stick together, then that's great. But the thing is, you have you have different kind of uh, energy levels and different wins, you know, second wins at different times. So it's quite it's quite difficult, to be honest, not to capitalize on that, you know, in this in these races. If you feel great and you found your stride, you should really you should really you know put that to bed and, and use that to your advantage. Uh, in the marathon de Sable in particular, you know, you would say to people, "Oh, great, let's do like the next twenty k together." And then, you know, 5K in, you're just a bit like, mm, God, I want to be going like a lot faster or a lot slower than this. And it's kind of, it creates um, a bit of a disjoint in, in kind of the, the strategy. And it's, it's kind of, I don't know, I, obviously on at certain times, it'd be great to run with John. John was faster than me on ice. So if ice is anything to go by, um, I'd be slowing him down. So, you know, I wouldn't want to do that to him. Yeah. The way I, the way I look at it, Claire, I know where Spencer is. Spencer knows where I am. If we need each other, uh, you know, we're, we're not too far away. And I think that's probably the connection that both of us look for on an event like this. And arguably in life, as cheesy as it sounds, like this is the sort of journey that you kind of need to do on your own because if you're uncomfortable on your own, you're uncomfortable, you know, with dealing with the negative thoughts and the fear. It's very, very beneficial to be exposed to that and spend time in the Amazon with that. Uh, but that being said, it's it's also good to know that there's a a brother or a friendly face, you know, a couple of kilometres either direction that you can reach out to if you need that one word of support. So um, there's definitely, you know, a mutual understanding of that between myself and Spencer and, and the other athletes in a race like this. Well, look, I wish you both the very, very best. I've I've no doubt I look forward to hearing how you smashed it. I feel you've you've got this. To enter it and go alone is absolutely massive people can follow both your journeys at John Belton on Instagram or at Spencer Matthews and good luck thanks so much darling so that's it for Live and Kicking for this week my thanks to my producer Aoife Breen and to Hugo De Silva Scott who was on sound and thanks as ever to you for listening I will see you next week Alive and Kicking on News Talk